that. Thursday night is a great night for somebody to be saved. I hope that will be the case tonight. We're going to read in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We have a massive amount of material to cover tonight. Uh, unlike other nights where um, what I said at the beginning was something of an extension of um, what was in the handout, the topic tonight was so large that I actually had to split it in half. So what you have is like part one of the story, and some of the details we'll look at, hopefully, in a few moments will be something like part two of this fascinating story of the effect that Christians had in relation to the uh, resurgence of the nation of Israel, and of course that is so intricately linked with our country, um, the United States. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. The Lord Jesus is the speaker, and he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now, the completion of that parable is extremely important, but that will suffice for our reading tonight. We're going to be looking tonight at the far right-hand corner of the chart. Just here, President Truman, who recognizes the state of Israel. Few things have had such an impact on America and on American foreign policy as our treatment of the Jewish people. I think that the nation has been richly blessed because we have favored that ancient people. Christians played a huge, a massive, indispensable part in this nation's attitude toward the nation of Israel. And when you read the handout tonight and consider the information here, you'll realize that they also played a tremendous part in Israel receiving its land again. So strangely, in a series concentrating on US history, it first involves people living in England and in Europe. William Heckler, Lloyd George, Arthur Balfour, and Heim Wiesman. The modern Jewish founder of Zionism is recognized to have been Theodor Herzl. His earliest and closest advisor just happened to be a Christian preacher named William Heckler, who was a zealous Christian Zionist. Heckler was born in India of German missionary parents, attended college in Basel, Switzerland, which is where Herzl was living when he first met him. So in 1896, this is how Heckler told the story, he knocked on Theodor Herzl's door. And when Mr. Herzl opened the door, Heckler said to him, 
here I am. <laughs> They'd never met before. He said, here I am. And Theodor Herzl said, well, that I can see, but who are you? And the Christian preacher answered, you are puzzled, but you see, as long ago as 1882, I predicted your arrival. Now I am going to help you. As historian Paul Merkley notes, this conversation represents the, the first encounter between Zionism and Christian Zionism. Heckler was concerned because Herzl, um, for two reasons, Herzl, he was afraid, would imagine that he was fulfilling prophecy, and Heckler found out that Herzl really didn't particularly believe in the Bible and was just uh, wanted to provide safety for his people. And number two, Herzl was leaning toward an easier path, actually Uganda, that perhaps Israel, the Jews, could be given a homeland that was not in their ancient land. And uh, what happened was, Heckler, both that day and then when he had Herzl visit him, not only opened up the Bible, but when he came to visit Mr. Heckler, he actually got a huge map. They, they, they say it covered almost the whole floor. And he went over with him, the layout of the lands and what God had said and what the Bible said. It was Heckler who was able to introduce Herzl to a number of influential politicians, helping to give the cause of Zionism legitimacy in the eyes of countless Jews. Now, Arthur Balfour. In 1905, British Prime Minister Arthur Balfour's conservative government fell, and new elections were called. While campaigning in Manchester, England, Balfour learned about a young chemistry professor at Manchester's Victoria University. Balfour requested a meeting with this professor, whose name was Heim Wiesman. He wanted to ask Wiesman about the possibility of a homeland for Jews in Africa, in Uganda. Balfour set aside 15 minutes for the meeting, and the two men actually ended up talking for over an hour. Wiesman later recalled that he was having a difficult time explaining to Balfour why the Zionists rejected Uganda. I felt that I was sweating blood, and I tried to find some less ponderous way of expressing myself. Then suddenly I said, Mr. Balfour, suppose I were to offer you Paris instead of London. Would you take it? He sat up and looked at me and answered, but Dr. Wiesman, we have London. I said, that is true, but we had Jerusalem when London was a marsh. He leaned back and just stared at me. Now, although Wiesman did not realize it at the time, his words had a profound impact on Balfour. Writing about the Uganda scheme years later, Balfour said, the scheme had one serious defect. It was not Zionism. It attempted to find a home for men of Jewish religion and Jewish race in a region far removed from the country where that race was nurtured and that religion came into being. Conversations I had with Dr. Wiesman in January of 1906 convinced me that history could not thus be ignored and that if a home was to be found for the Jewish people, homeless now for nearly 1900 years, it was vain to seek it anywhere but in Palestine. World War I, now this is where it really gets amazing, World War I broke out in the summer of 1914. As the war dragged on, Britain faced a shortage of acetone, a key component in the manufacture of explosives. Without a new source of acetone, Britain would lose the war in a matter of months. Hein Wiesman was a chemistry professor who happened to specialize in the manufacture of synthetic compounds. At the request of Winston Churchill, who was then the first Lord of the Admiralty, Wiesman oversaw the production of enough synthetic acetone to supply the British armed forces for the remainder of the war. Now, in 1916, a new 
first Lord of the Admiralty, replaced Churchill. When Wiesman next reported to London, he was greeted by this new first Lord of the Admiralty, Arthur Balfour. Although 10 years had passed, Balfour had not forgotten their prior meeting, and Balfour welcomed Wiesman by stating, you know, I was thinking of that conversation of ours, and I believe that when the guns stop firing, you may get your Jerusalem. Blanche Dugdale, Balfour's biographer in Nice, wrote, Balfour's interest in the Jews and their history was lifelong. It originated in the Old Testament training of his mother and in his Scottish upbringing. As he grew up, his intellectual admiration and sympathy for certain aspects of Jewish philosophy and culture grew also, and the problems of the Jew in the modern world seemed to him of immense importance. He always talked eagerly of this, and I remember in childhood imbibing from him the idea that Christian religion and civilization owe to Judaism an immeasurable debt, shamefully ill-repaid. Lloyd George. While Prime Minister Lloyd George may have referred later in life to strategic motives for the Balfour Declaration, he also said this which is a remarkable statement. It was undoubtedly inspired by natural sympathy, admiration, and also by the fact that, as you must remember, we had been trained even more in Hebrew history than in the history of our own country. I could tell you all the kings of Israel, but I doubt whether I could have named half a dozen of the kings of England. Of his meetings with Heim Wiesman, Lloyd George would later recall, when Dr. Wiesman was talking of Palestine, he kept bringing up place names. This, of course, is because of the Bible. He kept bringing up place names which were more familiar to me than places in Europe on the Western Front. Now, switch gears, please, and come back to America. President Harry Truman grew up in Missouri in a devout Christian home. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying when I am referring to a number of people who were greatly affected by their upbringing, by their knowledge of the Bible, by what they even read. I'm not saying that all of them were born again. I'm simply pointing out to you, as the title says, the impact of the Bible and Christianity on American history. When Harry was born, his parents were attending a Southern Baptist church, which both sets of grandparents helped to establish in Grandview. His father, John Anderson Truman, was also a strong Baptist. Both his father and mother, Martha, raised him in the conventional Baptist tradition. However, when Harry was six, they moved to Independence and they attended the First Presbyterian Church. When Harry turned 18 and moved to Kansas City, he joined the Baptist Church by baptism and remained a Southern Baptist the rest of his life. Truman said, I'm a Baptist because I think that sect gives the common man the shortest and most direct approach to God. By the age of 14, now this rough president that all you ever heard about was his use of, of, of language and, and that he was uh, tough and mean. By the age of 14, Truman had read the Bible cover to cover four or five times. Quote, from Sunday school and his own reading of the Bible, he knew many biblical passages by heart and could quote many Bible verses at random. At this point, as a young man, he went into business. Uh, I think it was a haberdashery. He went into business with a man. Just tuck that away in the back of your mind. That business partner is going to come into play here very soon. President Roosevelt died on the afternoon of April 12, 1945. Vice President Harry Truman was sworn in as President of the United States that evening. After the brief ceremony, he fervently kissed the Bible on which his hand had rested. One of the many problems he faced after the war was the problem of a homeland for the Jews. Compounding this was the fact that the generation of British leaders that were walking away from the Balfour Doctrine was different from the generation that had produced it. 
By and large, the new generation was raised outside of the British evangelical tradition that had so captivated early generations, and therefore they lacked the Christian affinity for the Jews and their dreams of a homeland. Without a Christian Zionist motive, and now without any convincing strategic motive, there remained very little to bind Britain to its earlier embrace of Zionism. As Britain turned its back, the Zionists looked increasingly to the United States to be their new champion and protector. After World War II, they would find support from a new president who shared the Bible-based sympathy for the cause that had animated prior British leaders. The seat of Christian Zionism moved across the Atlantic to the United States. As soon as the war in Europe was over, the Zionists mobilized to enlist American assistance in opening Palestine to the displaced Jews of Europe. So 30 years after he helped to secure the Balfour Declaration, who packed his bags and flew to Washington to see President Truman? Heim Wiesman. President Truman agreed to meet with him for the first time on December 4, 1945. The meeting was brief and unsuccessful. Truman kept mispronouncing Beesman's first name. It's spelled, as if you're familiar with uh, Hebrew names, it's spelled C-H-A-I-M, but Truman kept pronouncing it Cham. Hi, Cham. Yes, Cham. Now listen to me, Cham, instead of Haim. The meeting ended with no clear commitment from the president. Although he refused his request and mangled his name, Truman took an instant liking to Beesman. Like the leaders of Britain a generation earlier, Truman found Beesman to be unusually intelligent and engaging. This favorable impression would be of enormous value in a very short time. On November 19, 1947, President Truman met a second time with Wiesman. At that meeting, Wiesman worked his old magic. He spread a map of Palestine on Truman's desk. Truman sat enthralled as Wiesman spoke about the economic potential of Palestine and how Jewish pioneers were making the Negev desert bloom. Truman decided on the spot to give the Negev to the Jews. And at that critical juncture, Truman was showing himself pro-Israeli. However, the United Nations was involved, and tremendous pressure from the opposite side was causing Jewish support to erode. At that critical juncture, with the fate of the Jewish state hanging in the balance, President Truman now refused to meet with Heim Wiesman. He didn't want to anger any more people, but remember the man I told you to remember? The man who had opened that haberdashery store with him years before in Kansas City was named Eddie Jacobson, a Jew. If you ever read David McCullough's biography of Truman, then you will read that it was Jacobson who, along with Truman, were at the war. This is... Um, World War I, and got up and moved, just picked up to move their sleeping bags somewhere else, and the spot where the two of them had just been lying is where a shell exploded and they would have been killed. So Mr. Jacobson is alive. Eddie Jacobson gets in touch with him and begs him to please see, meet Heim Wiesman again, to please his friend. Truman agreed. He had Wiesman brought in the back door so nobody would know, the back door of the White House. 
and Wiesmann's power of persuasion and the mutual affection that had developed between them won the president over. Truman, ass uh, uh, Truman assured him that the United States would support the partition of Palestine into two independent states. Now you know what happened. May 14, 1948, the British mandate over Palestine ended and was at midnight that night when David Ben-Gurion uttered those immortal words, the state of Israel has arisen. As one Jewish man, a British student in Jerusalem in 1947 said this, for these 20 centuries, we Jews had always been the object of history. We were always the object of history. That is an object where others make the decisions for us. As of this date onwards, we suddenly became again the subject of history, where we make decisions for ourselves. The next day, five Arab states, Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and what was then called Transjordan, declared war. Israel's war of independence had begun. While their military victory would take months, diplomatic victory came almost instantaneously. Against all of the advice that Truman was getting from his um, assistants and his aides, from the State Department who said we need Arab oil, Truman said he would, he would be dictated to by what was right and not by what was needed in the case of oil. And he had this statement presented. This government has been informed that a Jewish state has been proclaimed in Palestine and recognition has been requested by the provisional government thereof. The United States recognizes the provisional government as the de facto authority of the state of Israel. The United States was the first country to recognize Israel. President Truman had acted so quickly, in fact, that he had to write the name Israel by hand on his statement. The document had been typed before anyone even knew what they were going to call the new Jewish state, and so he wrote in Israel. Clark Clifford notes one factor for Truman's determination. He was a student and believer in the Bible from his youth. From his reading of the Old Testament, he felt that the Jews derived a legitimate historical right to Palestine. And Truman often quoted such biblical lines as Deuteronomy 1 and 8, Behold, I've given the land to you. Go in and take possession of it. In Truman's words, he said, The stories of the Bible were to me stories about real people. And I felt I knew some of them better than actual people that I knew. You've listened very patiently. I'm going to just, just run through this very, very quickly now. Truman avoided public displays of emotion. He, um, he ordered the bombing of Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki and never cried. He welcomed home soldiers when the war was done and he didn't weep tears of joy. But there are four, occasion that it is known, four occasions that it is known of when Truman wept. Interestingly enough, they all have a play. We, we, we could look at every one of them for this meeting tonight. The chief rabbi of Israel assured him, read to him the passage about Cyrus and told him that God had put him in his mother's womb for this very purpose. And Truman said to him, are you saying that that is true? That I was raised up like, like a Cyrus to, to help Israel. And he wept when the, the rabbi assured him that. Years later, 1961, he was visiting with Ben-Gurion in America. The uh, reporters were waiting outside of the room where they were meeting. And Truman came out in tears after Ben-Gurion had thanked him for what he had done. And reporters then surrounded Ben-Gurion when he came out second and said, why was the president crying? What, what, what happened? What was the president uh, concerned about? In May 1952, President Truman attended a dinner in Washington to commemorate the founding of a village in Israel named Kafar 
Truman in the president's honor. The Israeli ambassador to the United States, Abba Eben, served as the keynote speaker. Now listen to his words. We do not have orders or decorations. Our material strength is small and greatly strained. We have no tradition of formality or chivalry. One thing, however, is within the power of Israel to confer. It is the gift of immortality. Those whose names are bound up with Israel's history never become forgotten. We are, therefore, now writing the name of President Truman upon the map of our country. In a village of farmers near the airport of Lida, at the gateway to Israel, we establish a monument not of dead stones, but of living hope, Kafar Truman. Evan recalls what happened next. As I left the rostrum, I saw the tough-minded president burying his face in a handkerchief without any effort to restrain his emotions. And in fact, when he took the podium uh, some years later to speak, and um, uh, he was introduced by that Eddie Jacobson as the man who helped to create the, the nation of Israel, he seized on what I mentioned to you earlier, and he said, what do you mean help to create? I'm, I'm just Cyrus. See, I'm just Cyrus, just the man who allowed Israel to come back into existence. So the history of the United States and of the world was dramatically affected by the exercise of two Christians, Blackstone and Heckler, and some God-fearing American presidents who knew what the Bible had to say. I'll tell you something about home. If you speak English, then the word home has deep meaning to you. I love the way one man put it. He said, home is a place you grow up wanting to leave and grow old wanting to get back to. Home. Imagine Jews scattered all over the world. No flag, no capital, no land, no home. Imagine them being chased in every country they lived in. Imagine they're being persecuted. Imagine Hitler swearing he would wipe them off the face of the earth. And think of their longing for a home. I want to talk to you about home. Because the Lord Jesus, in this parable, with just a few words, presents to us the fact that spiritually we are not at home. That we are away from home. Like this prodigal. You see, I, I, I think... I think I could speak to anybody and they would agree to this. They would say there's something wrong in our world. They, they look at what happened in Florida and they would say, no, you're absolutely right. There's something wrong with our world. But we're not talking about a world of buildings and a world of, of oxygen and a world of fields and grass and animals. There's something wrong with our world because there's something wrong with you and me. And the thing that is wrong with you and me is that as sinners, we have been alienated, cut off from the God who loves us and wants to save us. Now, without God, our sense of emptiness and insignificance has caused us to search for all sorts of things to fill that sense of emptiness. And the more people have run from God, the emptier they have felt. If you think I'm making that up, I've, I've, I've gathered some quotes for you. I want you to listen to them. David Hume, who fought against the Bible and Christianity, said, I am affrighted and confounded with that forlorn solitude in which I am placed by my philosophy. The agnostic Bertrand Russell said, tell me if this sounds full of optimism and hope. 
The, the life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain, toward a goal which few can hope to reach and where none may tarry long. One by one, as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. Brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark. Let me just give you one more. He was a New England man. He was a Connecticut man. He was a humorist. He wrote some and said some incredibly clever things. He was born Samuel Clemens, and you know him as Mark Twain. Let me, let me read to you something he wrote, this clever, witty man. This is what he said. A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps on them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. It, that is the release from life, it comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence. A world which will lament them for a day and forget them forever. Cheerful. These quotes are filled with hope and light and joy. No. They're filled with despair and emptiness and sadness and confusion and darkness and grief. Why? Because we're cut off from God. Look at life in the far country. Because the Bible uses words like I've just used, alienated, estranged, astray. In the spiritual sense, you do not have to move a foot from your front door to be in the far country and to be away from God, away from home. Because as Paul said in Ephesians 2, to be without God and without Christ results in being without hope. So no wonder the quotes we expressed were filled with such hopelessness. And there are others here. The irreverent editor, H.L. Mencken, said, life is a dead-end street. Life is a dead-end street. Compare that with what you'll hear Christians say at a breaking of bread when they'll say to God with reverence that we're only doing this until he comes. And we're looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus and to live forever with him. And people who tried to live without God are saying it's, it's just a dead-end street. There's nothing to it. It just ends, and that, that's all there is. Life in the far country has a lack to it. Notice a great famine arose, and no one gave to him. You see, he lived in a world that was indifferent to his deepest needs and was unable to meet those needs. It was a mighty famine. It was able to meet the needs of pigs. It was able to meet the needs of livestock. Just nobody seemed to care whether the boy died. Now, they've been working on the, the Tappan Zee Bridge for a long time. And now they, they shunt you off onto the new uh, construction. It's very nice looking. I usually am going too fast to see whether this has, this has happened or not. But on the old bridge, whether you were going to Westchester or uh, Rockland County, you passed both ways, you passed two signs. Two signs, both saying the same thing. In case you're going too fast and you only can get half the sign on the first time you see it, then shortly later, second one's there. It had a little saying on it, and then it had a phone number to call. Do you know what the saying was? 
Life is worth living. Life is worth living. And then an 800 number to call if you're contemplating suicide. They didn't want people going out on that bridge without just at least this reminder. Life is worth living. Why have people come to the conclusion in many cases that life is not worth living? Because living apart from God is not really living at all. It's merely existing. What if I told you about a doctor? A doctor who was brilliant as long as you were well, but as soon as you were sick, he had no idea what to do for you. What if I told you about a car that ran like a dream as long as it was in park, but as soon as you moved it into gear, the thing wouldn't go? You say, well, that's not much good for what, what, what it's, it's supposed to do. Well, God never intended that your life would be lived without God and without Christ and without hope. He intended that you would have real life. But life in the far country is marked by loss. He was perishing. He would become nothing more than a statistical casualty in a distant land. And the news would eventually filter back to his dad who, who loved him and cared for him. Oh, that boy of yours. Yeah, one morning the farmer went out back to see whether the pigs had been fed for the day and, and, and he found them there. And he's gone, he's dead. And they'd have hired somebody else to feed the pigs. And if you die and lose your soul, the world's not going to lose any sleep over that. It's going to continue with all that it's doing now. It's just you that will be gone into eternity. Where will you be? Daytona Beach has a bike week, Florida's bike week. I think they still do it every year. One year, some time ago, 14 people were killed. That's almost triple the usual. Just usually runs about five people get killed, but 14. Many of the bikers not wearing helmets. This is what one biker said. He had seen a fatal crash. He had seen people die in this bike race. You know what he said? You know, it kind of puts a damper on things. But, 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 but I still had a good time bike week. I mean, you know, it, it didn't ruin my week just because people were dying. I, I, puts a damper on things, but I still had a good time. People will come to your funeral. People will say nice things to your parents, your husband, your wife. They'll, 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 they'll be very polite and kind. The only people that will think twice about you are Christians who prayed for you and will wonder where your soul has gone. That's what life in the far off land is like. We're, we're, we're away from home. What the Bible does teach, what Luke 15 does show us, is that we need to return home. That's repentance. See, that's repentance. He started to think. It says, when he came to himself. It's like he had been unconscious. It's like he hadn't even been thinking carefully and critically. Like he was in a coma. Like he was hypnotized. And then he came to. And he faced the reality. He faced the reality that he was perishing. That he was going to die. There in a far off country. He was going to die. And he suddenly comes awake to it. That's what gospel preaching tries to do. It tries to take facts, realities, and, and, and present them before you in the hopes that you'll look at them, that you'll face them, that you'll think about them. There was one young man coming to gospel meetings. I remember that it was the Sunday night before Columbus Day, a Monday. And at that time, the school would be off on Monday, so I knew he would be home. 
And when he was leaving that night, I could tell the way he was listening. He was listening very seriously. Teenager. And I said, uh, would you be interested if we had a chat tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, he said, that'd be good. Do you know what he told me? Because I asked him, I said, when you, when, when, you, um, when you think about salvation, is this the kind of thing that you've been thinking about on a regular basis, or has it just hit you now? No, he said, just, just the last couple of days. I said, well, what, 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 do you, what did you usually do when you would come home from a meeting? Well, he said, I'd come home from a meeting. He said, I'd just come up to my room. He said, I'd put the headphones on and get the music cranking. He said, I'd just lie in bed and, you know, listen to my, my music. I said, did you do that last night? No. No, he said, I, you know, last night I just, I just wanted to think. I just wanted to think about what I heard. He didn't even realize, you see, that the reason he wasn't able to think about it the other times is because he just drove it right out of his head. Are you thinking about what God is saying to you? Are you thinking about what it would be like to be saved? Are you thinking about what it would be like to be lost, to lose your soul? Are you thinking of what it would be like from this point on to know you're going to be in heaven? When life is done, are you thinking about what it would be like from this point on if you were traveling to hell, never to be saved? Or are you letting the devil remove that? Because at this point, the prodigal starts to think and he heads for home. You see, as much as the father fiercely loved him, the prodigal was responsible to come back, to return. You see, it's the, the master preacher, the Lord Jesus, rounding the picture. God's looking for you. He's looking for you. That's why there are meetings here now. That's why the Christians have the lights on, the doors open, and they're having three weeks of meetings because God is interested in saving you. God is looking for you. And like the woman who searched for the coin, like the shepherd who searched for the sheep, God is looking for you. God wants to save you. But the Lord Jesus finishes the picture by telling us about a human being. And when it's not a sheep or a coin, but a human being, he's got to come back. That's a picture of a sinner taking his place before God as being nothing but a sinner. That's repentance. Would you agree with God tonight? People say, well, what, what, what is repentance? Unfortunately, the English word repentance has links with remorse. But the Bible word for repentance has to do with our minds. Has to do with a person changing his mind. Sometimes that change of mind is so dramatic that you will see evidence of it physically. But the word itself has to do with a person changing his mind and agreeing with God. God says you've sinned against him. Do you agree with him or do you think you're okay the way you are? God says your sins are going to take you to hell. Do you agree with him or do you think, no, God would never let me perish? Not me. People are praying for me and... And I, I, I'm, I was brought up in a Christian home. Certainly, I'm not going to perish. God says you will be in hell forever if you die and you deserve it. Do you agree with God? Or do you say, that would be a great mistake on God's part to send me to hell? Repentance is when a sinner agrees with God. Now, as the meeting closes, I need to tell you this other matter. If you come home, if you turn around and agree with God, if you turn from your sins and you turn to the Lord Jesus, you will be welcomed home. 
And that is the topic of salvation. Notice he was welcomed eagerly. How's the parable begin? The parable begins with a man on the run, doesn't it? He wants to get as far away from his father as quickly as he can, gathers his things together, goes in a far-off country. He's picturing, the Lord Jesus is picturing for us, human beings on the run from God. But notice that that picture is replaced by a picture of God's running because the father is running down the road to welcome him home. Why say that in the parable? I mean, I... I, I, I Please understand me, I understand these parables were based on reality, on things that happened. But notice that the Lord Jesus, of all the stories that he could have picked, picked this one. And presents to us the father running down the road. Not the father waiting home and saying, that boy will come back every inch that he went away. And he will bow here and he will tell me that he is sorry he did what he did. And he will never leave this home again. And maybe I'll think about, no, no, no. As soon as the father sees the boy is coming back, the boy is repenting. The Father races to meet him because the Lord Jesus is showing us how eager God is to save you. How eager God is to save you. You know what God wants to do in Brookfield tonight? God wants to save you here tonight. If you turn to him, he'd run to meet you. Notice he was welcomed unconditionally. If a person, now please understand, if a person comes having repented, if a person takes the place of being a sinner and comes to God, no strings attached, God receives him. Which is why the Lord Jesus says, him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. There's the death of the fatted calf. That tells about the full forgiveness God is ready to give you. There is the close of the beloved son. That's the great change that will take place in your life if you come to the Savior. There's the feast in the Father's house. That's the mighty contrast between where he was, starving, perishing, and now rejoicing with his father. And he was welcomed lovingly. The boy learned how much his father had wanted this, had wanted this. And the past was completely forgotten except for the fact that he'd think of it and thank God, thank God that he had come home and been received. Do you know, I, I, I read about um, a man named uh, Scotty Plummer. When he turned 18, he got into his VW bug and he headed to California. Just outside of a place called Needles, California, he was robbed at gunpoint. Lost his money, lost his car, lost everything. He hitchhiked to L.A., he walked to the beach, and he slept in a park. Within a few days, he was dirty, searching for food behind restaurants, begging for money on the main streets. When he got a little money, one of the things he did is he bought a beautiful postcard, and he bought a stamp, and he sent this postcard of the beautiful beach, he sent it back to his parents, trying to cover what was happening in his life. He sent it back saying, having a great time, found a good job, and have rented an apartment near the beach. He was too embarrassed to tell them the truth. How he spent his days was stumbling down Santa Monica Boulevard, holding out his hands like this to every passerby. Somebody drop a few coins into the hands of this obviously homeless person. And one day with his hand out, begging on Santa Monica Boulevard, put his hand out to a man. The man stopped. Pulled out some coins. 
And at that point, Scotty looked up. And it was his father. His father, who didn't believe the postcard. And had come to where he hoped he'd find his boy. Filthy, matted hair, unkempt. He wasn't even recognizable as the man's son. But he looked up and he said, out of shock, he said, Dad. And the man looked at his son. Threw his arms around him. Hugged him to his chest. This is how Scotty put it. Let me give you his own words. Despite the filth and smell, Dad hugged me. Within 24 hours, within 24 hours, I was clean, shaven, wearing new clothes, and on a plane heading back to Nebraska, sitting right beside my dad. You turn to God tonight as a guilty sinner, and he will hug you home. He will welcome you. You will go home saved, and you'll thank God that on this Thursday night near the end of February, with just two meetings left of this series, that you turn from your sins, that you turn to Christ, and that he saved you for eternity. Shall we?